0: Well, I want to um, take you back into the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I want to take you in particular to the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. We're going to read, although there's a chapter break, you must remember, of course, that the chapter breaks are not original. That when Mark originally wrote this gospel, there were no numbers, there were no verses, there were no chapters. They've been put in later. And so what we have here is the record of a single moment in this final week of Jesus' life in which he has this encounter with uh, these people whom Mark describes as the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders. In other words, the most important religious men in the land. And of course, Jesus is in Jerusalem, where these these men are particularly concentrated, and he's stirring up a bit of a ruckus in the city of Jerusalem on this week before he's about to be crucified. And as a result, the religious authorities are paying attention to Jesus. Remember that just uh, the day before, or a day or so before, he'd Cleared the temple. He'd he'd dealt with all the kind of um, the buying and the selling and the trading that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was actually enriching these very men. And so they come to him, and they're pretty frustrated with him, and they're questioning, and they have a there's a there's a certain edge to their uh, dialogue as it opens up with Jesus on this day. And we want to read the entirety of this dialogue and what Christ says to them and how he answers them. And really, what we're interested in today is is the question of why. Why we have this capacity in our hearts to resist Jesus. We see it in them, a wonderful picture, in a sense, in the sense that it's helpful, a picture of hearts that resist Christ and the reasons why we resist Him. But this is as much relevant to all of us because, of course, we live in fallen flesh. We live with the reality of our sin. We live with the reality that um, Christ is not entirely or completely um, uh, called Lord in our hearts. So let me read to you from v- chapter 11, verse 27. And we'll read through to the 12th verse of the 12th chapter. It says this, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And they're referring, of course, to the clearing of the temple, to his arrival in Jerusalem on the donkey, to the various events which had elevated Christ in the public consciousness. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, he's talking about his cousin John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now what he's describing here is a common situation at the time of what's called sharecropping, where an owner can set up his farm as a kind of business and then lease it to people who will run the farm, but on the understanding that he'll reap some of the crop. It says in verse 3, and they took him, and they beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he, the owner, sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed, and he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard... Sorry, and threw him out of the vineyard. I've lost my place. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. As I said, this is all uh, the record of one conversation that's taking place here. So what I want you to understand at the outset is, of course, that Jesus has this capacity to create conflict wherever he goes as people uh, butt heads with him or resist him or question him. And he creates this conflict in all of us. And the question is why? Why is it that Jesus, at the time of his ministry, and of course all through the centuries subsequently, why he, he encounters this kind of resistance? What is it about Christ that elicits this response from the human heart? And I think that the answer has to do with the fact that his claims are absolute. And what I mean by that is that there isn't a corner of your life that isn't touched by the question of whether he really is who he said he is. Either Jesus can be dismissed as an irrelevancy, as someone who really is not worthy of our attention, just a mere accident in history, somebody who had some interesting things to say and then was killed. Or he is the Son of God and the Lord of all his creation. In which case, if we assign truth to that claim then he his claims are absolute it means that there's no part of your life that isn't touched by those claims it means that your relationships he's got an interest in your relationships he's got an interest in your your way of living your morality if you want to put it that way he has a way that he he wants us to live and he's interested in that he's interested in your thought life he's interested in the purposes for which you live you know you you all could articulate um, what your hopes and dreams are in life, what your ambitions are, where you're going with your life, what you're living for fundamentally, these all of these things are under the remit of Christ's interest and his authority. And this is why he encounters conflict. And of course, there are other authorities in our lives, um, but none of them have this absolute and all-encompassing uh, remit to their claims. So you can think about, you know, we live under a government, a government that has authority over our lives in certain respects. But of course, part of the nature of living in a nation like ours is that we want to assert our liberties over against the claims of a government. Which is where you see some of the frictions arising over the rules that the government set down recently. We 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 uh, have bosses or teachers who have a, a measure of authority over our lives, but the authority isn't absolute. It's very narrow. It just is over a certain part of our existence. This is what's different about Jesus. His authority has no limits. If you if you take upon your mouth the confession that Jesus is Lord, there isn't any part of your life that he isn't interested in, not that he doesn't want to get involved in and change. And this is where the conflict arises. And I, it's so vital that we explore this reality. And it's, I, I, I want to underscore for you how important it is from a couple of different angles. The one angle is as recipients of his teaching, of his direction, of his authority, of his lordship in our lives. And we ex- we need to understand the nature of the conflict that emerges in our hearts, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. If you're a seeker who is who is at this moment considering the claims of Jesus and You're kind of exploring who he is and what he said about himself and whether you want to give your life to him. If there is any resistance in you, then you're familiar with what we're talking about. This is the point of conflict. This is the point of resistance. This is the point at which you're saying, I'm not yet sure that I want Jesus involved in this part of my life. And for some, that becomes a deal breaker. This is why many explore the claims of Jesus and then just just walk away. Where others, they can tip over that that point, the deal breaker is, is broken and they are able to surrender their life to Christ. But this doesn't stop when you become a Christian. This is the experience of the rest of your Christian life, of what uh, is described as this process of sanctification, of being made more and more like Jesus. If there were no conflict in your heart, you would be perfect. If there were no resistance in you to his authority, to his lordship, then you would be a perfectly submitted child of God. You would be like Jesus himself who submitted to the Father's will. But the reality is that all of us have these points of resistance, these questions, these friction points in our lives where we actually don't want to listen to Christ. And the proof of it is, is us, is me, it's you. It's The proof of it is our lives as they are lived out. And so we need to understand this conflict from that perspective, from the perspective of someone upon whom the claims of Jesus are active and we, we we feel this conflict internally there's another sense in which this is helpful though and it's from the sense of that as Christians our calling a significant part of what we're on this planet to do is to further the gospel of Jesus Christ which means to, to announce his reality and his lordship to all of creation to all of humanity that's the Christian calling and part of that therefore means that we we bump into this conflict in the hearts of others even as we are speaking the gospel. And Jesus said this is, this is what it means to be his followers. If you want to follow in Christ's footsteps, you're going to encounter the same kinds of conflicts that he encountered with others. He said it very clearly in Matthew 10. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the, the master of the house Beelzebul, which is an insult of course, How much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, if you make any effort to live and speak for Jesus, even just by your lifestyle and certainly by your words, then you will meet this resistance because to be a Christian is to submit to a different power, a different authority, and the world despises that. So we have to understand what's going on here. We have to understand why Jesus creates this explosive a reaction in people's hearts and what's going on here. Why does he start this kind of revolt? What is going on? And where I want to begin is with this aspect of his authority. You see, the, the scribes and the elders and the chief priests who come and ask Jesus this question, they start in exactly the right place to their credit. This is something we need to acknowledge right at the outset. The first thing, the most important thing about this dialogue is that it starts in precisely the right place when they come to him And they ask him, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? You see, the answer to that question is all important. It's the right starting point. And I I want to explain to you why that's the case. All of our beliefs, you don't arrive in this planet with a fully set form of beliefs and views on the world. All of the beliefs that you've accumulated that make you the person you are about everything that you have any opinion on in life, all of your beliefs are formed in response to the voices that you hear. We don't have original thoughts. We we receive uh, beliefs and worldview and opinions and all kinds of things from the voices around us and we're constantly, consciously or unconsciously, assessing the authority of those different voices so as to inform our who we are, what we believe, the way we live, about everything from the very mundane right through to the profoundly important aspects of who you are as a person. I'll just give you one example of this. Think about how in this world we have very different schools of philosophy as it, come, as it pertains to health and medicine. Now, in the course of my life, I've bumped into these different schools of thinking around health and medicine. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, one of my colleagues at the, the job I had at the time was a trainee chiropractor who took the first opportunity to, to, to get me on the floor and crack my back and make all kinds of bizarre noises. And I'm sure I'm still suffering the consequences of that encounter even to this day. I remember also an account, account, various encounters with Chinese medicine through my wife and her family and all that kind of thing. So we went to, we were in Malaysia one time and I uh, walked into, I mean, it seems to happen to me every time I'm on a holiday, I always walk into something and bash my head. It runs in the family. I, I walked into a shelf which was housing an idol. Now, I I suppose it was some kind of spiritual warfare that was going on. I I bumped into this thing. Immediately, this aged relative ran into his medicine cabinet and pulled out some Chinese medicine to apply to my skull and to try and better my health. And I've had numerous encounters like this on that front. I remember on another occasion... Um, being with some friends in the United States and voicing uh, the fact that I was experiencing a headache and occasionally have migraines. And I was experiencing one on this particular occasion. This woman who's in one of the, involved in one of these... Um, Schemes of selling essential oils dipped into her medicine bag and pulled out some peppermint oil and immediately plied it to my neck and and uh, in in the hopes of curing my migraine. I've been the recipient of Western medicine, of course. I've also, on uh, one occasion, uh, was at a friend's house who was a homeopathic doctor, and of course, homeopathy um, is is very distinct and different from Western medicine, and but still has a place within the NHS. And this particular doctor. Um, I I told him that my wife was nauseous, she was pregnant with Isla at the time, and uh, he he immediately went into his cabinet, pulled out some, some water, poured it on some pills, and gave it to me, and said, this is the cure for your wife's nausea. And so all these different... I've had encounters with these. You have to make decisions in your life, don't you, about whether you trust the authority of various voices. And of course, something like health is important. I'm not in any way wanting to belittle the reality of that. And of course, the... The reason why we encounter these differences is because we assign different levels of authority to different voices. So... You have the authority that you assign to science and to the the advances of technology. You've got the authority that you give to your auntie who told you that this is the best possible remedy for this particular type of sickness. You've got the authority of friends or an internet page you visited or whatever it is. You are constantly making decisions in life whether you believe something or don't believe it based on the authority that you believe it has. And often those decisions make no sense in reality. They're not objective, they're not rational, but we make those decisions constantly about everything that we believe. Constantly. So when these men come to Jesus and they ask him this question, by what authority? I want to stress for you, this is the only question that really matters. Does Jesus have authority? And what we've discovered as we've gone through Mark's gospel is that he presses this question upon us in so many different ways. Right at the start of the gospel in the second chapter, we find him offering the forgiveness of sins. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. So by the extension of the forgiveness of God over sin, Jesus is making a claim. He's saying he has authority. We then encounter him preaching parables about his kingdom, which at the time seemed like a laughable claim, because all he is is one preacher wandering around villages preaching about the way to follow God. But he says that the kingdom, which he's denouncing, is like a mustard seed, which you plant in the garden and then it grows to become the biggest tree and the, nerds, the birds find refuge or nest in its branches. And he's, he's pulling on an image from the Old Testament of an empire. He's saying, what I'm beginning is a worldwide global empire. Then you encounter him in that same chapter in Mark 4, stilling a storm on a lake so that his own disciples... Who, are, who witness him speaking to the storm, are terrified. They're so scared. They ask the question, you know, who is this man? And they think he must be some, have some kind of bizarre supernatural power. Forgiving sins, announcing a global empire, stilling a storm. And then just in the last few days that we've, um, of, of the week before he dies, in these chapters that we've been looking at more recently, we see him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, which again is is his claim to this global power. He's he's, he's embodying the prophecy of Zechariah, which speaks about the Messiah, humble and mounted on a donkey, and it says his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So although Jesus seems to us to be a very gentle, meek and mild teacher, he is making the most extraordinary claims to the extent and reality of his authority Claims which still resonate today. Claims which are so important that we have to wrestle with them and make a decision about them. And of course, this is what the men are picking up on. And I want to stress for you, friends, this is always the fundamental question. By what authority? It's always the fundamental question because it's always the point of conflict. Do you see any way in which the Christian worldview is at odds with the climate and culture in which we live. Think of anything and we can think about how it's so obviously true around, particularly in these days, I think sexual ethics and personhood. These things are points of major conflict. Just uh, tomorrow, I understand, our parliament will be voting on an adjustment to a bill which um, will allow abortion up to 28 weeks. Now, I've I've held in my hands a 15-week-old baby, our little baby who passed away and was born at 15 weeks. And you see, I saw all of his humanity there. And you think, why is it that Christians have these beliefs which so oppose the direction, the culture, and the sway of the way things are moving in this world? And the answer is always down to the question of authority. Who gets to decide when a person is a person, when they have a right to life? Who gets to decide whether you can express your sexuality in certain ways or at certain times in your life? Who gets to decide around these things? And it's always a question of authority and of where you assign authority as to what you decide is the right way or the wrong way to go. Always, 100% of the time, they are asking exactly the right question. Does Jesus have authority? It might puzzle you then why Jesus doesn't answer the question. Why does he evade it? Because he counters it, doesn't he, with a, his own question to them. He, t- he says, Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the reason why I think he does this is because he understands that when he meets with resistance from people, these men, or from you and I, when he meets with resistance, this resistance is not necessarily rational or intellectual, it's not necessarily open handed and honest. That our questions and our resistance often comes from a place which is less than intellectual, less than rational. What I mean is this. There's a writer, Jonathan Haidt, whose books are very helpful, secular psychologist. He he, He says, the reason why we're seeing so much conflict in the world around politics and worldview, and of course the last couple of months being a wonderful example of this. He says, because humans don't argue at the rational level we are intuitive creatures we think with our gut and he likens us to a rider riding on an elephant he says you think you're you're a rational person you're the rider when actually most of your direction is set by the elephant your gut your intuition your desires your unthought thoughts the things which drive you in any direction so when jesus has this encounter with these men in which they ask him the question by what authority if he'd answered them on that level, he would have th- been thinking he's having a conversation with the rider. When he's not, he's having a conversation with an elephant. And these men have already made up their mind about Jesus. For them, they see him as a threat. If you'll permit me, a Lord of the Rings reference. You'll know the story, perhaps you will. I can't guarantee that these days. But perhaps you ought to know the story. The city of Gondor, the city of men. The kings, the line of kings have vanished uh, with Isildur, one of the last kings in the line of kings. And the city is taken care of by the stewards of Gondor. And uh, Boromir is the next in line to be the steward. And then there's the reappearance of this man Aragorn, Strider as he's known, who claims to be the descendant of the line of kings. And we see, particularly in the movies, this conflict that emerges between Boromir who is one of the stewards of Gondor, and Aragorn, who claims to be of the line of kings. And this wonderful line, when Boromir, just when this conflict comes into the open, he says, Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king. And this is what I think is a brilliant picture of what is happening here when these men encounter Jesus. These men are the religious authorities. And as far as they're concerned, Jesus claims to be Messiah, even if rationally they ought to be delighting in his arrival at the gut level, they're resistant to his authority because it is a threat to them. And friends, this is exactly what goes on in our hearts. We are creatures who love to go our own way, make our own decisions. And to accept Christ's authority in any particular part of your life is a threat to that. And this is why we resist the truth. Jesus doesn't give them a straight answer, He rather questions them in such a way that it begins to expose the complicated realities of the human heart, that they're not just interested in truth, they have motives, they have intuitions, they have desires which shape the way they respond to to Jesus, which is why he asked them about this question about John the Baptist. And then we see them. We see them in a bind. It says in verse 30 and 31 how he asked them this question, and it proves their answer that they kind of vacillate proves that they are not really interested in the truth about Christ. And I want to then dig in a little bit more. We need to understand, of course, even if the conversation started at the right point, by what authority, we need to then explore what's going on in their hearts. I want us to understand the reasons why we resist the truth. You see, their heart... Their intuitions, their motivations are coming into play here, creating this conflict with Christ. Because on the one hand, these men of all people ought to be pleased that Jesus has arrived. And I would not hesitate for a second to say that every human being on this planet would be happier, would be more fulfilled, would know a deeper hope if in an instant I could click my fingers and and help everyone to see the wonder of who Jesus is. And yet, that doesn't happen. Why doesn't that happen? Why is it that when Jesus asks them the question, what it says is that they, verse 31 of chapter 11, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say, and if we say this, if we say that, the language that Mark uses there where he says they discussed it with one another is a word which um, occurs a number of times in Mark's gospel and it always speaks of a desire to evade the truth. They're prevaricating. They're, they're, they're trying to worm their way out of the implications of the question that Jesus has asked them. And this is how the human heart works. We don't just deal in a childlike way with in a logical way, with truth claims. We rather feel things and we resist things and we worm our way around things and this is how we function. Just this week I was um, interested to see something online where a guy had posted, he said that the Nazis who were put on trial at the Nuremberg trials for the atrocities that they committed against the Jews, he said, they were examined by medical professionals and they were found to be clinically sane. They were not insane, they were clinically sl- sane. They were men in their right minds, in a sense, a manner of speaking. And not only that, but they were find to, found to be above average intelligence, so that many of them had uh, PhDs. And so these were intelligent men, sane men, who committed the worst imaginable acts, things that still you know, terrify us and are the stuff of nightmares you ask, how could men of that gift and ability do things like that? And one Glenn Scrivener commented on it like this. He says that it proves that humans are not rational creatures, but rationalizing creatures. Which is to say that we don't just use our great brain power to discover truth in an honest quest. We use our great brain power to to rationalize our way to the decisions we've already made about what is or is not true, about how we should or should not live, about what or who can tell us what to do. These men, like us, were motivated to resist Jesus. And this is what Jesus is exposing in their hearts. They're not really interested in the answer to the question about whose authority he's ministering in. They want to do their own thing. They want to go their own way. This is the problem of the heart that we need to expose. Let me show you a few things then that we see in them. Why is it that they were motivated to resist Jesus? And the answer is very simple, that he threatened things that they cherished. This is always the problem of your heart, that there are things you cherish which Christ wants to speak to, but which you wall off from him. Let me show you a few of the things that they were cherishing. He threatened their popularity. Now this is a massive one, but we see this coming through a number of times in these chapters. It says in chapter 11, verse 18, that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So there they are, they look at Jesus, they're afraid of Jesus because they can see the reactions of the people in relation to Jesus, and it threatens their own position. We can see the same thing at the end of chapter 11. It says, what shall we say from man? That they were afraid of the people. We see in chapter 12, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. All of their decisions about Jesus are made with reference to popular opinion. What will the people think? What are the people doing in relation to Jesus? How does that affect us? And in that sense, they remind me a great deal of the way in which social media has so corrupted our politics these days, because so politicians are so enslaved, aren't they, to their Twitter accounts, refreshing, refreshing, constantly trying to gauge which way the wind is blowing in order to form an opinion and what to articulate about what they believe. And you think about how the mob rule has affected opinion. Well, something like that was going on with these men. They were very conscious of their standing in the community and And they were not willing to engage in a quest of truth on its own merits, come what may. That's not how they approach it. They rather approach it through the filter of, what are people thinking? How does this affect us? And I want to stress for you that people-pleasing and the quest and the desire for popularity is the death of godly leadership, and it's also the death of authentic discipleship. Just one reality that's quite plain from Any reading of the New Testament is that to follow Jesus always involves a cost relationship-wise in terms of how people regard you in this world. You doubt that, just go into work tomorrow if they let you into work. Go into work with a, a, a symbol that you're a Christian. Announce it, put it on your screensaver, whatever you want to do. We hesitate because we understand that to follow Jesus and to acknowledge that you're a Christ follower invites at, at least quizzical looks and questions, but it's often worse. And so for these men, the question of popularity played into how they wrestle with who Jesus is. And unfortunately, this may be true for all of us. It's true if you're a seeker after, you know, after spiritual truth. You know, if you're really honest with yourself... One of the reasons that weighs either way on whether you want to follow Jesus or not is what people will think of you. And it's true even when you're seeking to live the Christian life. One of the reasons which either, that hinders you from following Christ more wholeheartedly is because you don't want to be perceived as a fanatic. It's become a bit of a poisonous word in our culture. He threatens their popularity. Another thing he threatens is their position. Now this comes through in this parable that he tells them of these sharecroppers. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. And what Jesus is doing is he's building up a picture here of the position of these men, the religious leaders. Everything in this parable is representative. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard itself is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders who are kind of in charge, who are kind of who are responsible for shepherding the spiritual life of Israel. And the, the servants that the owner sends to the vineyard to go and get his share of the crop represent prophets who come to speak truth to God's people. And just as we see these servants, one after another, beaten or killed by the, the, the tenants, so also in Israel's history. Every prophet was someone who suffered at the hands of the religious elite or of the common people. We see Elijah banished to the wilderness. We see Isaiah who, according to, to, uh, to tradition, was sawn in two. We see uh, Zechariah who was slain within the temple by the altar. And so this is what the scriptures say about the way that God's people, particularly God's prophets, are treated. In Hebrews 11 it says this, They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And the great question is why? Why is it that God's truth speakers are often so maltreated and abused, even by people who ought to know better? And the answer is, of course, That the truth is always a threat to power. Now just think about this. Something we can immediately reference here is what takes place on the world stage. Wherever you see the curtailment of press freedom, in other words those whose responsibility is to speak the truth, wherever you see those freedoms curtailed, you have dictatorship. Wherever you see that. And wherever you have dictatorship, you will see the curtailing of press freedom. Because truth and power do not easily mix. And if that's true on the global stage, friends, that's true in your heart and in my heart also. The reason why truth can be difficult to hear is because it threatens autonomy. It threatens your desire to choose for yourself. You know, you could picture yourself as being like the tenant in the vineyard. You don't want to hear the servant of God coming and, making claims on your life, because to do so is to give up your power, to give up your position. And I've seen this play out too many times to count. As a pastor, you know, I've had uh, so many, known so many men and women over the years who I would have counted friends and, and brothers and sisters in the church who at some point, you know, built up, some kind of resistance in their life and decided they want to live a way that displeases God or that grieves the Holy Spirit, to use the New Testament language. Of course, part of my role in those moments, just as others have spoken to me when that's been true in my life, part of my role in those moments has been to speak truth, to be like the servant going to the vineyard and saying, you know, the owner has a claim. And too often, far too often, tragically, I've seen people walk away from God in those moments because when it comes to it, we don't want to hear the truth if the truth threatens our ability to decide for ourselves how we want to live. So even though we would like to think of ourselves as rational creatures who, will, who care about truth, who have an honest quest for truth, we're not. We care too much about popularity and what people think. We care too much about power and position and autonomy. Another thing these guys cared about, the final thing here, is that they cared about their possessions and their comforts. And this is something that comes out in the parable again. It says in verse 7 that when uh, the owner sent his beloved son, which, who of course is rep- represents Jesus, it says those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. In other words, <clears throat> what they wanted was the fruit of the vineyard. They wanted to sit And relax and enjoy the wine that they were making and enjoy a life of indulgence and hedonistic pleasure. That's what it means to enjoy uh, this vineyard. And the arrival of the owner or the owner's son in this particular instance is an awareness that he might have a thing or two to say about the way that you're living. Now, I think this speaks profoundly to the instinct in our hearts to Want to live for comfort we, we want to live for pleasure, we want to uh, be able to decide what desires we we indulge in this life in order to make the most of this life, or as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and yet the voice of Jesus penetrates into that reality into your own. Uh, right as it were to live for your own pleasures and he comes in as the owner who owns you, who owns the vineyard, who is Lord over all things and he has a claim. He has a claim on you. And hence we resist Jesus because we don't want to engage in self-denial. We don't want to pay the price. We don't want to count the cost to be followers of Christ. So you see the issue is clear. What Jesus is showing by his parable by the way that he exposes the hearts of these men is fundamentally this, that we are not simple, childlike creatures who merely assess the facts, who, who will do whatever, go wherever the truth leads us. That is not who we are. That unfortunately the human heart filters everything through desire. Through what you want to be true or not true. We rationalize. We, 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 we worm our way out of the implications of the truth. We worm our way out of the implications of the Lordship of Christ. This is what we do. This is who we are. We're resistant. We kill the prophets. We, we ignore the sun. We kill the sun. This is the human heart. And this is unfortunately true, a disease which is true in every single one of us, which is why the New Testament says that it takes an act of God, a miracle, a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, in order to open up your heart to the truth. It takes the breath of God in you to enable you to respond rightly to Jesus. Not just just when you first make that decision to become a follower of Christ. But at every juncture and moment in the Christian life subsequent to that, as you see the implications of his lordship in some more other part of your life which you need to surrender to him. And so the whole of the Christian life, from this moment to your death, is a sequence of these conflict moments. Which takes, and it takes the work of God, this is what I'm trying to say to you, it takes the work of God to bring us to the place where we can really, truly, honestly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and surrender to him. Now let me just close by asking you this question, why does it all matter so much? And listen, there's a surprising answer to this. In one sense, Jesus shows us that it doesn't matter at all what you make of him in the sense that my opinion and your opinion is entirely irrelevant. And what I mean is this, this is what he says to these men. In verse 10 he says, Have you not read this scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. What he's showing these men who ultimately decide to walk away from Jesus and later that week arrange to have him put to death. What he's saying to them is this, He's saying that their opinions about him actually fundamentally don't alter the truth at all. They don't really matter. He quotes here from Psalm 118, the image of the stone that the builders have rejected. They say that that stone's no good for this structure. So that's the stone which God has appointed to be the very cornerstone, the most important stone in the entire structure, the, pon- the one upon which the whole thing is going to be built. And this is what we understand about Jesus. Yes, he was rejected by his own people and continues to be rejected today by many and rejected indeed, even in our own hearts. Yet our opinion about Jesus in that sense does not matter. God's opinion matters. God has vindicated him. God has established him as the cornerstone of his entire structure of his new temple, the church. And it's a little bit like this. If you spend too long on YouTube, You might find yourself in some dark corner uh, among the conspiracy theorists and you may encounter, for example, those who claim that the earth is flat and that there's been some great conspiracy, some great um, effort to convince us for reasons that escape me. Um, that the earth is round and that we should not be duped by all of this nonsense. If you look at the horizon, can't you see it's self-evident that the horizon is flat and therefore the earth is also flat. And such people, unfortunately, are deeply convinced of the truth of what they believe. And the question I put to you is, does it matter? Does it it make any difference at all to the shape of the earth, what people think about it? And the answer is, is no. Our thoughts do not shape reality And this is one of the great and fundamental things that people have to grasp in our age. We do not get to shape reality by what we think is true or is not true. It's not how it works. Reality shapes our thoughts. And ultimately, every mind and every heart more to the point will be brought to a place of acknowledgement of the greatness and the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures tell us. This is what we're seeing play out through history. So in that sense, it doesn't matter at all what you or I think about Jesus. But in another sense, it's the only thing that matters. If Christ, as he says here, has been established by God as the cornerstone, if, in other words, he's been given absolute authority, and if the implication of that is that what you make about him is the only thing that ultimately determines Your destiny, in fact, your eternal destiny. If that is true, then there is nothing more important than that we continually acknowledge and surrender to the lordship of this saviour, Jesus Christ, and of his authority in our lives. I want to ask you, has Christ been speaking to you? This is what it all comes down to. Has he been speaking to you? Has he been laying his claims upon your life? Perhaps because you are somebody who's on a spiritual quest, a seeker after truth. And you know that there's a part of you that's been drawn to Jesus, but there's also a part of you which is not yet ready or that has encountered this resistance I've been speaking about. And I want to urge you, what I've been trying to show you today, is to not just ask the question at the level of whether it's true or not, that is ultimately the most important thing, but also to understand why your heart resists it. Try and, as far as you are able, understand your intuitions and motives and the reasons why you might reject Jesus and why those reasons might not be good enough. Why they may be very poor reasons to reject him and ultimately why it can be self-defeating and self-destructive to walk away from Christ. Is Christ speaking to you? Is he nudging you? Is his Holy Spirit at work in your life? Think about why you might walk away from that if indeed you're tempted to do so this is true, friends, as I've been saying to you repeatedly. This is true even as you, you, you seek to live out the Christian life, as you grow in your sanctification. If there were no resistance in us, we would be perfect. But there is resistance. All of us are at some point or other in our lives stubborn. All of us fail in some areas to acknowledge Jesus. We're resistant to him. We're resistant to his voice. We're resistant to him being authority. We're a bit like the tenants in the vineyard and we say, go away. We'd rather enjoy the fruit to ourselves. We'd rather keep our own pleasures for ourselves, and we'd rather not listen to the voice of God and his demands and his claims upon us. This is true of me. It's true of you. Likewise, we need to be aware of the reasons why. We need to be aware of the the, the, inner mon, the inner sort of dialogue that takes place that you may not even be conscious of, the what-ifs. What, what happens if I really obey Jesus? What happens to people's view of me? What happens to my sense of autonomy or power? What happens to the comforts that I'm enjoying in this life? See these things for what they are so that you can look at Christ for who he is. And understand that Jesus, there's a final word here, friends, understand that he is gracious. I'm so grateful that Jesus, even though he encounters this this wicked resistance, even from his own people, from the religious authorities who ought to have known better, Christ still comes in pursuit of his people. I came across this quote from the Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon from the Victorian era. He put it like this. He says, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. And I can tell you that the love of Christ has never been more clear to me than in this very fact. That even though I have resisted him in so many ways in my life over the years, and I've been a Christian a long time, even though I have imperfectly followed him, that I've battered away the voice of his servants and that I've even pushed away the son himself, even though all of this can be true of me. And it's true certainly if, if you, if you know anything of your heart and what your heart gets up to. The love of Jesus is so persistent and so gracious and so kind. And it seems that even in our effort to destroy him, Which is what the Jerusalem authorities did. Even in that, Christ finds a way to turn it for our good, in that his death was the means by which he saved us. And, friend, this is a word of encouragement to you. You may find that you're in some conflict of spirit. Don't be despairing. The Lord Jesus is very persistent and he is determined to have your heart. Why don't we just come to him now? As we close with a time of worship, we have an opportunity in this moment to, um, to assess him afresh, to think about his claims, to think about the reasons for which, which would cause us to walk away from him and to resist him and, and why, why we need to follow him. Let me pray and let's just open our hearts up to the Lord. Lord Jesus, the scriptures say that you know the heart of man. And Lord, when we look into the mercury realities of our gut, our heart, the reasons why we rationalize instead of really engage with truth, Lord, when we look into um, what's going on down here, we just see so much mess. It's not really clear to us, Lord, why we struggle to obey you. It's not really clear to us why we can't accept your words at face value. But Lord, we thank you that you are so incredibly patient, Lord. And that even though you encountered this kind of rationalising, worm, slippery behaviour in people, and even though we've embodied that, you keep persistently moving towards us. God, preserve us from the deception of thinking that we know what's best. Bring us to a place where we can say, Lord, you know what's best. You know what's best over our sex lives. You know what's best over our Possessions and money. You know what's best over our relationships. You know what's best over the directions and ambitions of our lives. You, Lord Jesus, you're the owner of the vineyard. Come and assert your Lordship in our hearts afresh, we pray. Spirit of God, fall in every home and on every heart. Just put your finger on the issues, Lord, the reasons for which we turn away from you. Thank you for your patience, Lord. Amen.